Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. And we hope that if you are listening to us, maybe on your radio dial, you will hit subscribe. And we hope, well, you're not going to hit subscribe on your radio dial. Let's be clear about that. What we want you to do is find your way to the podcast listening platform of your choice and subscribe or follow there and leave us a rating and review because it really does help us out. Well, the eyes of the political world are beginning to turn to the one set of tea leaves that we get in this non-congressional, non-presidential election year, the big gubernatorial elections in New Jersey and especially Virginia. Every four years, it's this quadrennial ritual where we turn to Virginia and try and figure out not only what it's what's going to happen there, but also what it means for the whole political environment in the U.S. There is no one that I can think of who is a bigger expert on the politics of Virginia than our old colleague and friend, Mark Bergman. Former Congressman Paul Hodes and I, my co-host on this show, have been very privileged in our lives and careers to know Mark, to work with Mark, to be advised by Mark. And the same can be said of politicians and advocacy groups around the country. Mark is a highly sought after advisor, consultant, operative, practitioner of the dark arts. He also was a right-hand political man to current Virginia Governor Ralph Northam and just knows the dynamics of Virginia better than just about anyone. And by the way, has good general political advice for just about everywhere. Mark, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Congressman, for having me. Oh, it, you know, it's it, it's a real pleasure, Mark. The last time I think I saw you was was in the back of some arena in some tunnel with some some presidential candidate or the other that you were clearly advising. And like my presidential candidate, I don't yours didn't make it, but neither did mine. So it was it was good to see you. It was good to see you. And I think it was the the depths of the, well, I don't know what they call it now in New Hampshire, the Verizon Center or whatever it is now, the Southern New Hampshire Arena. There you go. That well, you know, I, I'm going to start with a little, this is a little curveball here. I, it, this is not the main focus of the conversation here. We want to talk about Virginia and what Virginia means for the country. But look, Mark, before you were right-hand man to one governor in Virginia, you were right-hand man to another governor in Connecticut. And that was during the time of the most horrific school shooting. I mean, they're all horrible, but the most horrific school shooting in living memory in America at Sandy Hook. And just this past week, the defamation lawsuit against Alex Jones was successful. Um, he, he was found liable. Um, any, any, any thoughts about that? Any, any reaction to that? Alex Jones is a mentally ill man. Um... So I'm not entirely certain why people take him seriously, but they do. And him advocating that somehow those children didn't die um, and were not shot in a mass school shooting is horrific. 
Um, and he should be liable. Um, he, you know, that is defamation of the memory of these children and the, the parents who have to live with that every day. I've met a lot of those parents, um, including uh, Nicole Hockley, um, who uh, is a leader now of Sandy Hook Promise. And it's very sad that they have to live with this memory every day. And the guy like Alex Jones, who is tearing open that wound for them, is he, he should be held liable. Amen. And uh, couldn't have said it better myself. And I just, you know, I, I, it, I know we're kind of starting off the show on, on, on a really somber note, but I, I just had this reaction knowing you and knowing that you were up close in the middle of experiencing what is sort of the hardest thing for a political leader to deal with, which is this kind of pain inflicted in our society. I just, I, I, it, I seeing that made me think of you and that experience. And I hope that this leads to a measure of justice in that matter. All right, from the sacred to the profane here, we wanna talk about Virginia. We wanna talk about the Virginia gubernatorial election. For listeners around the country who are not in Virginia, why does this matter? Why is Virginia worth paying attention to? Well, a couple of reasons. One, there's, a, there's something called the Virginia curse, where the party that holds the White House usually loses the governorship in Virginia. Um, and that has gone on since uh, 1977. Um, and there's only been one exception to when that has not been the case. And that was in 2013, where Terry McAuliffe, who is currently the Democratic nominee for governor, was elected governor. The other reason why it's kind of interesting and is more reads the tea leaves around the country is almost every year, every four years, the governorship is open in Virginia because there's a weird, quirky constitutional rule that says you cannot serve consecutive terms in Virginia. So every four years, you have an open governor's race. And that gives you a good sense of where the national climate is because it's not about an incumbent governor, but about you know D versus R, Democrat versus Republicans. So you get a sense of where the national climate's going after the first 10 months of either a new president or a newly reelected president. Mm-hmm. So, so let's go take us back into the Virginia Wayback Machine, um, sort of a, a historical tiptoe through the political tulips. What what have the past two decades looked like? I mean, take us through the evolution in Virginia, how it turned from red to purple to blue to purple or whatever it is now. Is it magenta? Um, uh, And in what ways uh, is it now a good bellwether for the country in your view? So Virginia, um, when I first got involved in Virginia politics, Virginia was a rural state run by the rural parts of the state. And that means South Side, which is the Southern portion that touches North Carolina, Southwest Virginia, which touches West Virginia and Tennessee. And that's mm-hmm. where the power base of Virginia politics was. Um, and what I saw over the course of 20 to 30 years in Virginia is that power base going up North and going what we call in Virginia, the urban crescent, which goes Northern Virginia to Richmond, 
to Hampton Roads, which is where, you know, the naval base and the, you know, and uh, the Atlantic, you know, the beaches are. So that's kind of where the base has gone. And the population has gone, has exploded in the suburban areas of the state over the last 20 years. If you look at uh, a gubernatorial election 2001, Matt Robeson's old boss, Mark Warner, when he ran for governor in 2001 against a guy named Mark Early, he employed a bluegrass country band, purchased a NASCAR racer, and ran for governor as, you know, a Bubba, um, a rich Connecticut Yankee running for governor of Virginia as a Bubba. And that was his path to win, which is I got to do well in the rural parts of the state, as well as holding my own in the suburban parts of the state, because suburbia still wasn't solidly democratic. And then if you look four years from that, Tim Kaine, who, um, as everyone knows, is a U.S. Senator vice presidential nominee, he ran for governor on a completely different path, saying, I'm going to turn out unlikely suburban voters to win in Loudoun County and Prince William County, and I'm going to turn those voters out, and that's how I'm going to win, and I'm going to ignore the rural parts of the state. And he did, and that has become the model for the Democratic Party in Virginia, which is overperform in the suburban, exurban areas. And if you look at all of our elections, the ones we've won, the ones we've lost, it comes down to counties like Loudoun County, which is an exurb of Northern Virginia, Prince William, another exurb of Northern Virginia, and increasingly in Rico and Chesterfield, which are suburban areas in Virginia. And now Tidewater is becoming an increasingly competitive area, Virginia Beach, Chesapeake, and then the peninsulas that kind of jut down to the Chesapeake Bay. If you're watching for where Democrats need to do well, it's those areas. And that's where the Democratic Party has gotten stronger over the course of the decades. The Republicans have not figured a way to penetrate that in Virginia. It's why we're on a winning streak that goes back to uh, we haven't lost a gubernatorial election in Virginia since 2009. Well, you know, so, and I just wanted to point out that what you just laid out there is sort of the evolution of politics in America over the last 15 years in a way, because when when I worked, back when I worked for Mark Warner, the story was, you know, those exurbs were just solidly red. And what we saw, for example, in the blue wave in 2018 was the suburbs and then the small suburbs and exurbs turning blue as voters predominantly well not just not just white but 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 predominantly white middle class voters who were republican leaning got repulsed by the trump version of the republican party so is that kind of the mirror that we're seeing in virginia was virginia sort of leading the way of that evolution yeah and it, and it really started and you guys know this better than anyone it started with the repulsion of george w bush um, in 2000, from 2006 to 2007, um, and people were uh, and people were pretty angry about the way the Bush uh, the Bush administration was running their second term. Tim Kaine's election in 2005 came after the beginnings of the Jack Abramoff scandal. Came after Hurricane Katrina. Came after uh, his failed Supreme Court nominee. Uh, I forgot her name. You'll you guys would remember it. 
um, came out. Harriet Myers. Harriet Myers. There it is. Um, there was Robeson all of that. Gold stars. Yeah, that was leading up to Tim Kaine's election. And that pretended, that showed what was going to happen in 2006 when Paul got elected to the U.S. House of Representatives and beat Charlie Bass. You look to 2009 when, um, you know, we were in the middle of uh, beginning a Senate race and Bob McDonald was running for the running for governor against Cree Deeds and McDonald uh, really did well in the suburbs. And you could see um, the beginnings of the collapse of the Democratic Party in the suburbs in 2009. So both of so these elections kind of give us a sense of where the suburbs are going, where the rural votes going, how turnout's going to be. So, um, yeah, I think you, you look at the evolution of Virginia, it's an evolution of our country, it's an evolution of our politics, which is that suburban voters, ex-urban voters are the base of the Democratic Party. And if they're not performing well for the Democratic Party in Virginia, it ain't going to go well the next year. Let me just follow up and ask, are, are the majority of voters in uh, Virginia female? Uh, it depends. Um, usually. It depends on the turnout model. We also have something where, because we're doing these weird off-year elections, um, turnout is really fungible. Um, and usually about 52% of the electorate is female, usually. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in 2009, when McDonald won, um, the majority of the electorate was male. So as turnout decreases in Virginia, men become a larger share of the electorate. I see. So the, the surge turnout that Democrats are looking for, I mean, again, another way that Virginia is really a great lens into the, the evolution of politics in the country is if you get more women, it it's good for Democrats. Yeah. And, and as turnout as a percent of the electorate goes up, it's good for Democrats, usually. Now, you look at the last three gubernatorial elections. 2017 was the largest turnout. Uh, in Virginia, Virginia history. And we won by nine points. Um, if you look, if you put that race in 2013 turnout, if 2017, the 2017 election was in 2013 turnout, we would have won by three. And the surge of the people that were coming out were women. They were white suburban women who don't, didn't normally participate in off-year gubernatorial elections, but voted. In a and reaction. reacting to, to Trump. Trump. Exactly. Yeah. And if you even take a look at 2019, when we flipped the legislature from Republican to Democrat for the first time in 25 years, uh, you look at a comparable election, which would be 2015, turnout was about 25% of the total electorate. In 2019, when we flipped it, it was 42% of the electorate. Wow. So yeah. turnout, if you're looking to for the tea leaves in Virginia, and I think across the country, it's turnout. We need the white suburban women to come out in the same number as they came out in the age of Donald Trump. And we're going to see whether that's real or not. Yeah, well, you know, Democrats are praying that uh, Texas and the Supreme Court is going to get hung around uh, the Republicans neck and uh, that it's going to fire up women. That's th that I think was the gift that, you know, I think the governor, Governor McAuliffe is really planning on being 
using that at the end. They really, though, believe, I mean, I talk to them pretty daily. They really believe vaccine mandates is going to be their path to victory. Um, and they they say that we've got to go hard on vaccine mandates. They're running television ads on that. And that's kind of where they're going. Um, I think they're I think in the closing weeks of the campaign, I would be stunned if they didn't go to abortion to close this out. That's really interesting. Actually, you know, not at all what I had in mind, but I, let's just let's just follow up on that for a second, because the vaccine mandate, again, I think we've well established in this conversation that Virginia is an excellent lens to look at the overall political dynamics in other states and around the country. And so this vaccine mandate question is something that's been hanging over the Biden administration for months now. And we were, Paul and I were saying when we were discussing this topic, I'd say over the summer, early summer, three months ago, we didn't think a vaccine mandate was likely. At the time, this was before the Delta surge, it looked like we were on track, maybe slacking a little bit on the, on vaccine progress, but we're more or less on track. It wasn't going to be necessary. And the thinking was, hey, th this is more trouble than it's worth. We're going to buy more blowback than benefit if we go to a vaccine mandate. That seemed to be the thinking inside the Biden administration. By the time Delta hit and we got into August, Obviously, the thinking began to change very rapidly, and it then became, hey, look, the voters are with us on this, and most particularly, who's who's with us? It's, it's the suburban, middle-class, multi-ethnic, but, you know, these, these movers, these, these white voters, women who are with us on this. If we do this vaccine mandate, we're not going to lose anyone who could have been with us. And we might actually gain some folks. Is that is that sort of encapsulating the thinking inside the McAuliffe camp as well? Yeah, yeah that, that that's what they're thinking. My only question on the vaccine mandate is a matter of intensity behind the position. Um, the people that are opposed to the vaccine mandates, there is a ton of intensity behind that position. Hired up and ready to go. Yeah, the people that are that are in favor of it, I don't think there's the same level of, they may be with you, but they're not going to be like, I'm going to burn down the schools if they mandate my kid to get, get a vaccine or if they don't mandate it. So it's very different in terms of the motivation of the audience. And if you're in an election that's about turnout, I kind of wonder if by talking about it, you're only motivating your opponents um, as opposed to motivating your your voters. All right. Is there a, is there a, a theory, though, that you need a villain in every story and mm -hmm. At the very least, what going to this topic does is it makes Greg Abbott and Donald Trump and all these all these figures out there that we know from recent years, these voters you need to get, you need to surge their turnout. We know that that's what really ticks them off and motivates them to show up. So if you make this an us versus those guys type narrative, is is that sort of the thinking? Or you're saying, look, the yes, maybe, but the intensity just isn't there. It might be. We're about to find out. I mean, they've got polling that says that they're that they're doing the right thing, but they've got to see they've got to see whether the we won't know until the voters show up if the intensity is there. And right now, in all the polling, the, the candidate with the intensity right now is Glenn Youngkin, not Terry McAuliffe, the Republican. Absolutely. I do want to talk about a recent political experience in Virginia that kind of sets up another important lens for what's going on politically in America. You were a key advisor to Virginia Governor Ralph Northam during 
a controversy that blew up around some old photos of him that were very unfortunate politically. And for for our listeners, just before Mark dives into the question, uh, who may not follow as closely, uh, the old photographs surfaced of, of Ralph Northam in blackface in basically in and around the time of the events of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. That's when the photographs came up. One could not imagine a more precarious visual than Ralph Northam in blackface around the time of Black Lives Matter. Well, by the way, if you want to just more, I'll say it for you because you're not going to say it for yourself. The answer here could be that he survived because he had Mark Bergman advising him. But you can now give us what you think is the real answer. Well, you know, I could talk about this probably for the remainder of your podcast, but you don't want that, uh, nor do your listeners. But I will say this, a couple of things. One, uh, uh, it was not him in the pictures. Uh, so that that was that was that was that's the first important fact on that. <laughs> you mean that helps? You mean truth has something to it, do with it, it, politics? Wait a second. I reject it, the premise. Yeah. So. <laughs> He had never seen this yearbook when it was his med school year, never seen in his life. It showed up after a week that he had a very contentious week about abortion, where he said something on the radio about if you were to do a partial birth abortion as a doctor, here's how it would go. It caused a mass furor. And then what ended up happening, the reason why it surfaced was an old med school classmate who was pro-life was very angry at him and gave the picture to a Republican operative to drop on a Friday at three o'clock when we weren't, the governor wasn't prepared to respond. He was hit blindsided, admitted to something he didn't really know much about, and then didn't sleep the next day, had a bad press conference, led to mass calls for resignation. You know, the, the thing about it is that had he spent a little time thinking about it, he probably wouldn't have reacted the same way he did. But put that aside, the reason he was able to survive, and this is the key reason, was the press couldn't find any aspects of his life that were racist. All they could find was the picture. They they were looking for people who could prove that he had said racist things at VMI. It could prove he was a racist his entire life. They couldn't find any of that. What they constantly found was people saying what a great guy he was um, and how this doesn't fit with his entire life. If you look at the comparison to Andrew Cuomo, there was like women upon women coming out every week saying this is who this guy is. So the, the, the Cuomo people were constantly saying we're going to do what Ralph Northam did and just hold on and survive. But the answer is the way to survive a scandal like this is to prove it not true and to do it over a period of time and to build up good political will so you can survive it, which is what he did. The real challenge with him, honestly, in advising him was when there was intense pressure on him to resign was to not let him fold under that pressure. You know, it wasn't just me that was advising him, our good friend, Tom King, um, was providing advice and saying, listen, if this wasn't you in the picture, you shouldn't resign. Um, and I think that was like he needed to be bucked up uh, to make it through the storm. And once we got through the, the, the hurricane, the political tsunami of it, 
getting past that and not resigning was easy because there was nothing else that was going to come out. And he could actually focus his term on fixing some of the racial inequities that, you know, he kind of got awoken to because of the storm. I can I can hear in my in in my the dark deep recesses of my brain I can hear Tom King talking to Governor Northam. Uh, Tom, uh, folks, Tom, Tom King uh, was a was was one of my primary advisors, a, a, a super smart guy with a great Boston accent, and I can just imagine imagine him governor there. Uh, if that wasn't you in the picture, then uh, what, what are you worrying about? Um, just, just clam up. Now gonna we got to have Tom on the show to defend himself. It's all going to be your impression. It's all going to be okay there, Governor. Just, <laughs> just hang in there. Well, you know, I will say this. I, you know, Mark, you and I went through professionally. Yes. A, a, a similar, a similar scandal. That's similar in. in it was bad. It, it was, was bad. bad. <laughs> so what we, what we had, I was the campaign manager for John Tierney, who is a member of Congress, whose in-laws were running an offshore illegal gambling ring. And his wife, (laughs) yeah, in Antigua. And And his wife went to prison because she received payments from them. She misunderstood what they were about. And it just, what really resonated with me about what you just said is we reached a moment in that, in that campaign where the the parallel is that the press was not letting up. Actually, the 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 leader of that pylon was Mike Resendiz, the Boston Globe investigative reporter who broke the spotlight scandal on the Catholic Church. Let me tell you uh, what an experience it is to be on the phone with Mike Resendiz when he is in full attack mode. I guarantee you that the same actor who played the Hulk in the Marvel movies, he nailed it. That that's the level of aggression. And by the way, I really respect Resendiz. You know, good for him. But when you're in that position, one of the things that you advised us at the time that seems to me like kind of what you're saying here is, you know, you have to, you can't buckle under. That's what the media does. They're going to do what they're going to do. You cannot back up and you cannot buckle under to that. And if you ultimately have the truth on your side, you just need to write it and write it out. And what I recall you advising us to do is what we we did. A we held conference. a press conference and we said, we're just going to we're just going to let you guys punch yourselves out. It was like a it was like an Ali Foreman rope dope. It was like, are you done? Is there anything else? I mean, is that is that essentially what you have to do if yeah. you find yourself here and you have the truth on your side? You, you do. Um, and you have to let the press get their pound of flesh is what I kind of call it. Ooh. And until until they get their pound Ooh. of flesh, they will not stop. And, oh, yeah, oh, and then yeah. well, I remember, for, I remember I talk, I'm I just whining. I'm whining, Mark, because no. as a former candidate, letting the press take a pound of flesh out of you. I mean, I mean, I got some to lose, but but that is just so <laughs> it's a fabulous painful. weight loss plan. I mean, I was thinking I'm thinking about back to my uh, Senate race, God help us all. When a um, a a subcontractor to a subcontractor cool. asked a bad question on a uh, doing some polling, and uh, he asked a bad bad question to the sub subcontractor of a Republican 
operative who who blew it up in the press and sort of in as we were headed limping already limping toward the finish line in this race uh, the press got a hold of hodes hodes asks bad questions on polls he's we're going to refer it to the attorney general's office and as a as a candidate there was there was no more to give no, that you, I remember that, you know, we, we luckily got our campaign manager out of state before there was a prosecution. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I remember you said that if she went to prison, you were going to bake a key into a cake and said, yeah, so that was yeah. nice of you. <laughs> um, um, I will say, and luckily you changed that stupid law because it was a stupid law, um, but stupid in New law. Hampshire. But, well, you know, that's funny because I, what, what Mark is referring to there is New Hampshire is the state that most mis- – I'm not insulting our listeners. We, we, love, we love our listeners. But New Hampshire was the state of all the states I've, I've worked in politically that had the deepest misunderstanding of what a push poll is. There was a, a yes. theory that if anyone asked any question on a poll that gave any information that might be negative about a candidate, that that wasn't really a poll. It was – a way to persuade voters. And that's, I, I, I won't belabor why that's wrong on like 50,000 different yes. levels. But yes. we did, when I worked in the state legislature, we actually fixed the law thanks to Republican Jeb Bradley, who, who led the way on that and Democrat David Pierce. So that was fixed. But you were going to say something intelligent, Mark. Uh, yeah, I was going to call that Val Martin's law. But we'll, uh, <laughs> um, we'll uh, we will uh, move on to how you survive a scandal. You know, a lot of it is you have to understand that the press is going to do that. They're going to. And if you defy them and defy what they want you to do as a politician, it's going to be bad. You know, I remember Paul Begala called me uh, right before Ralph did that press conference where, you know, it did not go great. We'll put that aside. But he said, you are about to blow the national press's minds because they all think you're going to walk out and resign. And when you don't do that, it is going to explode on you because they they you are not doing what they suspect you to do. Um, And you got to understand the national press is like a pack and they are a pack of people who live conventional wisdom. And if you don't do conventional wisdom, they will eat you. But you know what? If you can survive it and prove them wrong, then you can serve as a model for other politicians who have the truth on their side. Because the media climate has become so toxic over the last four to six years that we need more leaders willing to defy them. Well, that's sort of an unpleasant but also inspirational walk into the way, way back machine because... It is true. And of course, what's really hard for those of us who are now consuming political news is to know when you're in a situation where the press is just doing the press thing and piling on. And when you're in a situation where, no, they're, they're, they're actually onto something real. And speaking of which, I, I want to ask about the coverage of what's been going down in Washington, because as our listeners know, and we spent a lot of time on this show and, and other programs uh, under the Beyond Politics banner last week, talking about the Build Back Better, it's the, basically the Biden agenda, and how it reached an impasse among Democrats in Washington last week. I had Ryan McConaughey, the former right-hand man, to Chuck Schumer on the show talking about 
What's it like inside the room? What's going on behind the scenes? And why is this so stuck? There has been reporting that, first of all, the McAuliffe campaign is closely watching this, that they badly want the infrastructure bill to happen because they think they can run on it. And there's also a sense that I've picked up from media critics, and I have one of them coming on the show this Thursday, that the entire media narrative about this has been this sort of breathless horse race, you know, he said, she said, focus on a meltdown among the Democrats rather than, hey, you know what? This is a really important era-making set of legislative tools that could fundamentally change the lives of people in America. So I'm I'm loading you up here, Mark, with a two-part question. Is there a connection, a political connection to be drawn that's really meaningful and important between what goes down in the next few weeks when it comes to the Build Back Better agenda and the infrastructure bill and the, the, the gubernatorial race in Virginia? And do you think that the media has totally lost the thread and the narrative of reporting on that? Have they kind of gone to politics land and missed the core important parts of the story? Uh, the answer to both questions is yes. Um, in Virginia, because of our proximity to D.C., um, especially the large segment of voters that are in the D.C. media market, national politics is local politics. Um, these are federal workers. These are people who are defense contractors. They follow what, what goes on Capitol Hill more than uh, voters across the country. So, yes, what happens in Washington will determine whether Terry McAuliffe wins the governorship or not. And let me give you some numbers on why that's relevant. The McAuliffe campaign and the Glenn Youngkin campaign, Glenn Youngkin's the Republican nominee. They both believe that if McAuliffe doesn't crack 60% in the DC media market, this thing is a, this thing is a one or two point race either way, because it will come down to the Richmond suburbs and Chesapeake, Virginia beach, Hampton roads. If McAuliffe cracks 60, there is no mathematical way for Glenn Youngkin to win no matter what he does in the rural parts of the state, no matter what he does anywhere else in the state. Because Virginia politics is effectively 40% of the electorates in the DC media market, 60% is what is in the ROVA, rest of Virginia. So if McAuliffe doesn't crack 60, which is what Northam got in the DC market, this thing is a horse race because the Youngkin campaign thinks that they can run up the score in rural Virginia and, and win the exurb, win the suburbs of Richmond and Tidewater. So yes, this is very relevant. The bigger vote I think that is more relevant is the debt ceiling vote. The debt ceiling does not pass. And we are talking about an economic meltdown in mid-October. I would say the McAuliffe campaign is in deep, deep trouble. The Build Back Better agenda, they basically last week said, this ain't going to be done till December. In my view, that's effectively what they said because we're tying it all together and we're effectively done um, until we negotiate this in the back room. Because I think what you're saying is exactly what they thought, which is we are losing this press battle. So we got to get this out of the papers and stop negotiating in the media and start negotiating on Capitol Hill. Because if you're the average person, you're like, I don't even know what's in this bill. Like I do this for a living. I don't know what's in this bill. It's big. Um, I just know it is a massive spending bill. That is right. all the voters know. It's like, Democrats want to spend trillions of dollars. That is literally all they know. By the and way, as, like, as as usual, the Democrats have 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 not effectively messaged 
Uh, and the only thing they ought to be talking about is this isn't this isn't spending. It's an investment and it's all paid for. We're going after the rich people and the corporations. All they ought to be talking about is this is what this is what we're doing for the rest of America. And that's it's nowhere in the coverage. Uh, well, it's nowhere in the coverage because they're negotiating in the press. And right. the speaker rightfully is saying, listen, we can't negotiate the policy until we have a top line number. And that's the right way to negotiate on Capitol Hill. But it's certainly the wrong way to message a bill. Um, so they've got to get this out of the press on a day to day basis and actually do the legislative work without, you know, the media hordes talking about the horse race. So I think the Biden administration strategy here is like, let's just like let some air out of the balloon. Let's like give everyone a breath. Let's start negotiating again and then we'll get to it. I think the Biden administration is thinking about reelection or making sure Democrats stays in the White House, because as we know from the Affordable Care Act debate, whatever they pass is not going to be popular come 2022. It's just not. It's going to take some time for people to understand what they're getting here. And no matter what they pass, it's going to be like it's going to be lost on the average person. They're going to think even if we're taxing the wealthy, they're going to think their taxes are going up. Doesn't matter whether we just tax the wealthy because they're like, how are, how's the wealthy going to pay for all this spending? It's going to come out of my pocket. Absolutely. I mean, that's all people. Are, Paul's right. All people have heard is the is a big number right and so what they're hearing is spending and what mark just said taxes and that well, is and wait wait they're, they're yeah. hearing spending and taxes and then they're hearing democrats in disarray yes. so democrats in disarray taxes spending hmm that sounds like a very very effective republican playbook so it let's is. say mark let's say you're right let's say that this we're we're not getting anywhere till December. But we get the debt ceiling done. Let's just assume we don't have a massive government shutdown. So we're we're able to survive that. Can McAuliffe eke it out if we don't get the infrastructure and we don't get the build back yes. better done until December? Yeah, I think we I think he can as long as it gets out of the front page. The the McAuliffe campaign is worried because Biden started this election in his internal polls above 50. Biden's now at 46 statewide. They're worried he's going to drop to 43. If he drops to 43, he's going to lose. They know that. So they need Biden to stay right about where he is. So they need the administration to get a win so Biden can either stay or move up. The Afghanistan thing really took Biden, really gave Biden a big hit nationally, but also really in Virginia. So I think that's what the McAuliffe campaign is worried about. I don't think it's about the agenda. I think it's about the president's approval rating. Yeah. I mean, Virginia has so much military presence in the area around uh, Virginia Beach and Chesapeake and that whole that whole part of the coast, which is a big part of what you described as the important places for Democrats to do to do well. I mean, there's the there's the there the there's the base, and it's a huge. So Afghanistan was terrible all over the country for Biden, but I bet it was especially powerful in uh, Virginia. Um, so you know, we we have a few minutes a few minutes left, um, and. Mark, you've, you know, we, we worked together 
now it seems like the dark ages of <laughs> 2008 and 9 and 10 and that you know i mean it seemed but it also seems like it was a pleasant time in politics there was the there was the normal viciousness there was the 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 usual insanity and 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 the media landscape has changed in the intervening time since we worked together on 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 my campaigns and uh, what I was doing on Capitol Hill, we've had the rise of Donald Trump and Trumpism. Um, things things in in life have uh, moved on. So, looking back now, because you've reached a certain age, you're you've got gray hair. You've uh, advised people. You've lived through crises. You're a parent now. That life has totally changed. How has politics changed over the course of your career? And and you're one of the one of your extraordinary skills is as a communication expert. And are communications experts in the political field able to have more of an impact because there are more modes of communication and more communication channels, or or less uh, because of polarization audience overload and just the you know if you take try to take any almost any week in the news these days it's it's like a lifetime to digest how, how do you handle it uh politics has gotten harder uh not easier um mainly because there's less persuadable people because everyone's kind of gone and taken the sorting hat and gone to the democratic side or the republican side and there's a very increasingly small amount of people who are persuadable. Um, the media climate has become more hyperbolic. Um, the, the traditional press that's left has become more partisan. Um, and that social media has made communicating to people even harder. Um, you know, here's a great example. You look at TV viewing habits of people now. 26% of it is on cable, 24% is on broadcast, and the rest is streaming. And that's split up among all the different streaming services. So to communicate to someone on a video content, you gotta do everything. You gotta do cable, you gotta do broadcast, you gotta do streaming, you gotta do digital, and you gotta do all of it. And it costs more money and it's harder to communicate and harder to have a message breakthrough. It's not the old days where you, you put a thousand gross rating points on television, you got a message. So it's harder to communicate, it's more partisan, and Capitol Hill is fundamentally broken. I, you know, when we worked on the Hill, say what you want about what we did, we passed some of the most consequential stuff that this country has ever seen. When you go from the Wall Street bailout to the auto bailout to Obamacare to the stimulus, that was a consequential period of time. And Capitol Hill has not met that since then. I completely agree. And, you know, as as much as to some degree, that's a downbeat note to end on. It is always delightful to hear from you. And I hope our listeners really appreciate like you, you've just taken a tour through deep political expertise. And it's totally fascinating. And I think all of us are going to be watching along with you, what unfolds in the Virginia race. And then I'm sure we're going to need to have you back to have you explain what the heck it all means. Mark Bergman, thanks for being with us. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me.